Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the MBN Entrepreneurship and Leadership Channel. As well as new content, we are making available selected podcasts recorded by our hosts prior to joining the MBN family. This is one of them, and so this podcast may refer to itself with a different name and identity. Enjoy the show. The center of innovation is here. And, you know, this is part of the message of Project Cashmere, of this whole podcast, that there's something happening here which is beyond just good value for money. Like I said, having the vision is great, but the key is these concrete initiatives that drive it at the ground level. I think Holland all these people who are really, they do extremely well with very limited resources and we can take advantage of the really low costs here. You know, Poland is the land of opportunity, and I, and I like to say the East is the new West, because you always used to go West in history to find more adventure and danger and prove yourself. There are some good things beginning to happen here in Krakow, but we've got a very long way to go. Good morning, good evening, good night, whatever time of day it is, or night it is, Project Kashmir's listener. Today on the show, we've got a special guest, someone I've known for quite a number of years, Alex Shea. And Alex, rather than me try to introduce you, why don't you do it yourself as if you met a stranger at uh, some kind of businessy or event or party and someone said, oh, you look interesting. What do you do? Right now, I'm, I'm sort of involved in three things. I am uh, the chief commercial officer for electrification for a, a big US company called Allison Transmission. Um, I'm also still kind of the CEO, uh, but very much still the co-founder of a company called Vantage Power that was acquired by Allison in April last year. And I'm also uh, the chair of a local school. Okay. And you mentioned the, the, the company that was acquired by Allison. So the reason I've invited you on the show is that you founded and set up and ran and then finally sold your startup to a large American corporation. And part of the objective of this show is to uh, give people the, what I call the entrepreneurial journey. But I think to give it context, could you just in a few minutes take people through the Vantage Power story from more or less what, from whenever you want to start to, to where you are now? Uh, so the story really starts actually even before Vantage Power. Uh, while I was at university, and I was studying mechanical engineering. And when I went into university, I didn't really have any particular interest or passion for cars. But when I got there and saw a whole lot of technology and projects being developed around electric vehicle technology, that I really caught that bug. Um, and there were a number of projects that I involved myself in around, you know, um, formula student race cars things like that which which got me very excited and then um, finishing university I, I was quite frustrated that there was all this cool interesting technology you know this is going back to 2009 where it was still quite early days in the uh, EV world I wanted to do something to help change the perception of electric vehicles and, and accelerate and stimulate that market um, so myself uh, and a few other recent graduates from Imperial College uh, designed and built what was at the time the world's longest range electric car. And we drove it from the top of Alaska to the bottom of Argentina, which is the longest road in the world. And that was a world first. It still actually hasn't been done in an electric car uh, over 10 years later, uh, which is still quite good to know that our record still stands. 
Um, but anyway, that, that really got us thrown in uh, to the deep end. We were engaged with a lot of different businesses. We learned how to get things done on a timeline, on a budget. It was a huge amount of experience. It was successful. Um, and that led me and another chap from that project called Toby uh, to form a company called Vantage Power. And the idea behind Vantage Power was to take many of the technologies and learnings that we had from that project, turn it into a business somehow. And what we ended up deciding to do was to design a hybrid system that could be retrofitted into existing buses to reduce fuel consumption and, and reduce emissions. And we built up a business around that. Uh, we raised uh, probably close to $10 million of funding in total, built up a team of fantastic engineers, professionals, built some fantastic technology. And towards the end of 2017, we started getting approached by, by several businesses. Um, and then we started running uh, essentially a, an acquisition process over the course of 2018 glossing over many of the details and focusing on the positives rather than the negatives. We can get to that later. But uh, towards the end of 2018, we ended up meeting Allison Transmission. Fantastic company, really good people. We, we sync very well, uh, got on extremely closely with them. And, and it was really a matter of weeks before you know, they had decided to make an offer and, and we had decided that, that uh, they were the company that we'd like to move forward with. And... Um, by April uh, of 2019, the deal was done, signed, and uh, we became Allison Transmission employees. So for people who are listening, who want to hear, this is, in some sense, this is the classic story, because this is a very modern story of the sort that didn't really exist 30 years ago, where someone fresh out of university with good track record and a vision raises money forms a company, builds a company, sells a company. And that's, you know, that, that is the story in a sense that a lot of people now think is normal, but it's not, it's not that normal. How many people of your generation of university did anything remotely similar? Would you say you graduated in 2012, 2011 about, is that right? Uh, no, I left university in 2009. Um, actually quite a few of my, uh, cohort have started businesses, um, I, and actually, a few have exited them as well. So, actually, I would say in, in my social group, it's 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 rare, but it's it's definitely not unheard of. And, and a few people, I have one friend actually who's who's exited two businesses already. So it's uh, it does happen. Actually, probably more than you might think. Well, well I mean, I, I guess uh, you, I, I don't like being <laughs> I don't like being wrong, especially online. So I'm just having to. <laughs> I'm just like that one, and maybe I just didn't do my research properly. Um, what I, but I'm, we're very interested in what I'd call the entrepreneurial journey. And I, I remember when I first met you, I, I was, I asked you where you'd got the confidence from to feel you could start and build a business of that scale. And you told me how your father had let you sit in on business meetings, and provided you behaved yourself and kept quiet. And this is sort of giving you the idea of what, what business was about. And I remember that was, uh, my children were quite young at that stage. And I remember that was a huge insight. And I started dragging my children along to start. <laughs> and, uh, partly inspired by your father. So that, uh, but, so that was uh, a context, but was it expected 
in your family that you'd go into business? Or where do you think your entrepreneurial instinct came from? I think there, there definitely is a very large family element of it. I think um, the, the experience that you mentioned definitely played a, a big forming part in my life. Um, I think uh, a lot of my family have started their own businesses. So I was kind of exposed to that from a relatively young age. Um, but going back to your point about, you know, what gave you, you know, the confidence to believe that you can start a business. <laughs> I think there is a degree of confidence, but it's probably outweighed by the fact that you don't know what you don't know. So <laughs> you think, well, starting a business, how hard can that be? Or maybe you don't even think about that. You, you just, you just, you're young, you know, the consequences of you failing are not particularly high, at least in the early days. Um, they, they grow exponentially as, as you go forward with the business, of course. Um, and you're, you're just less afraid of failure. So it was, it, it doesn't require the same kind of confidence that as an adult, you look back and say, oh gosh, that was a, that was a big leap of faith. Yeah, so you've, you've alluded to perhaps some of the challenges that it, you said you don't know what you don't know. And presumably part of that is just how stressful and difficult some aspects of being in business. And I certainly noticed over the years, because we didn't, we didn't sort of see each other every day by any means, but we were in regular touch, that there was mm. some, some stressful times. So what, what sort of categories of things do you think uh, a young entrepreneur ought to be aware of that helps is informed maybe flesh out that insight that there was there was a tough side to it that you hadn't you hadn't realized was coming what are the main categories of tough things that you didn't you didn't realize were down the line oh gosh i mean i think trying to segment them into tough categories is is tough but um that's my job i would say i say one of the things that that is really difficult to deal with and I think takes a lot of mental strength or preparation to be able to deal with. And, and I've heard this from so many entrepreneurs is there is no such thing as a good day. And if you're lucky, bad days are rare. And what I mean by that is the, the, the day in, in the life of running a business has so many inputs and so many things happening that just statistically, some things will be good and some things will be bad. And it's very difficult to sit back at the end of the day and be, you know, totally satisfied, totally happy with the way the, way the day has went because there's so many things going on and not all of them necessarily positive. So it can be quite challenging to enjoy the moment and um, sort of take a step back and appreciate what you've achieved and what you have. And, and that I found... Um, was always a struggle. But then, you know, moving away from that sort of philosophical thing, there are just things that you deal with when you run a business that you do not deal with or very rarely deal with in normal everyday life. You know, you are managing lots of people. You are responsible for their salaries, their mortgages. You know, that is a, is a big burden to shoulder. You know, you are dealing with legal issues. You are dealing with shareholder issues. Um, there are, you know, has the printer stopped working? Who's going to sort that out? You know, you need to, <laughs> you need to figure out everything. And, uh, there's probably a lot more firefighting than there is, uh, value building, particularly in those early days where, I mean, for the first year, year and a half, you know, when we ran out of toilet paper, that was me running down to Tesco's to <laughs> buy more toilet paper. <laughs> 
Um, so you really, you really do get the broad range of experiences when you are setting up a company. It's funny you should mention the toilet paper. I was just thinking of like the trivia issues that sometimes when I'm doing entrepreneurship workshops, I will talk to a bunch of school kids. Like, imagine you've got an important customer coming to visit and you walk into the the, the toilet in your 10, 15 person office and it's someone hasn't cleaned it. And like 10 minutes later, the cli- or five minutes later, the client is arriving. You're in charge. What are you going to do? And, you know, you see this sort of this panic strike. Look at, and the, the, at one level, I remember, obviously I'm a lot older than you, that, the, the, the realization that you're responsible for everything then you know that you know if someone does something badly that's good that's you hired them you know if yeah. something's yeah. going on it would should be within your power to make it happen but that that sort of image of the entrepreneur being in the smart building taking important decisions is so far away from the reality of you know we so who's got the key to the office to lock up on a friday evening when exactly we've had that one many times and i guess the way to think about it is and i think this is true for a three-man startup as it is you know fortune 500 company and that is that the CEO or the um, the main executives are disproportionately um, how to, how to put it uh, they get too much praise when things go well and they get too much blame when things go bad in the sense that you know you are responsible for everything but you cannot control everything and that is equal equal to your successes to your failures mm. and and what sort of things did you personally find? Well, and some things are hard and you know they're going to be hard. Like I noticed you, you, were, you were good at sales and meeting people and getting out there. Good, you had good presentation skills. And, I, you know, it's not easy, but it seems to me that that fell into your sort of things that you were born with. You, you're a good communicator, you know, friendly. You, you know how to smile when it's necessary. You've got that sort of – uh, some people don't have that and they can learn it. But that was – but what, what things did you find more challenging? What, what were the things that, you know – you felt you really had to push yourself in order to be good enough to to do the job. Um, I think it was uh, a lot of the administration stuff, which is is always the unsexy stuff that gets looked over. Um, but it actually is is fundamental. And, and when I look at some of the things that might have been instrumental in you know, getting investment or ultimately selling the business, it probably was a lot of that, um, you know, administration stuff, corporate governance, making sure that, you know, you have a data room somewhere with every document that business could possibly have or need um, well indexed and searchable and all that kind of stuff. Um, I'm, I'm not the best with, with things like paperwork. So it was, it was always a challenge for me to get well organized around that but but i saw the i saw the need and, and we were very fortunate in our early days we we had a, an investor and director who unfortunately died in in 2014 who um or 2015 i should say uh that um he he forced that on us very rigorously uh, and that and that turned out very well and then and later we hired a, a lady called rebecca who's still with us fortunately who basically ran the whole show and, and was very instrumental in making sure we were well organized on that front. Have you written, have you documented that anyway? Have you written down, it might be, if you've got a spare afternoon, it might be a, a very valuable thing to write, you know, how to document your, your startup, just a sort of an essay. Yeah, 
I have definitely have documented lessons learned and things like that. Um, you published it. Could, Sorry? Have you published that anywhere as blog posts or anything? Like no, that? I haven't. No, I haven't. I, I could do that. Um, I but it, a deadline, a, a deliverable. But if I would, I would strongly encourage you to do that because you, you think you're going to remember, but memory memory fades. And if you if if you do write it down, and if there's a next time you're mentoring or investing or who knows starting another business, you, you'll find it very useful to come back to that. It's a uh, Anyway, that's just a, a recommend. I, I would, if you do it, I will link to it. <laughs> <Like that>. Okay. <laughs> well, well, that kind of brings me on to another point, which I think it's very difficult in the early days, particularly pre-investment. You know, as soon as you have investment, I think this becomes a key point, and that is, you know, you have to recognise where you are not strong, and you need to hire very good people to fill in those gaps. So. There, there is very little value in a founder who's, who might be technically very strong spending their time doing the accounts. It's just, it's just a waste of time. Not that accounts are not important. It's just that the person would be better off doing their techie stuff. And so you're, you are, it is incumbent upon you as the business founder to find someone that is very good at that and can take that piece of time away from you so you can focus on other areas of value creation within the business. That's terribly important. And, and you know, for anyone listening, this is um, this concept of working on the business, not in the business. You don't have to do everything yourself, but as a CEO, you are responsible for making sure that the person who is responsible is doing it properly. And there's yes. a wonderful podcast called Manager Tools, which I'll, I'll link to, run by two old American soldiers, which is the most popular management podcast in the world, I believe. And they talk about the concept of a battle readiness inspection, that a military unit has to be ready for a random spot inspection where a senior officer shows up and says, right, battle readiness is inspection. No one's allowed to touch anything. And they just start asking questions. Who's in charge? Right. Where is everyone? Who's sick? Who's at work? Who's on holiday? Um, what What are you responsible for? Where are their personnel files? And they, they, they make the point, very few businesses would be ready for a battle or readiness inspection. But ultimately, that's what you're legally, you know, you should know as the CEO where everyone is and if you don't, and, or how to find out. And if you don't, you know, this sort of flat, trendy, modern culture is actually illegal where everyone's doing their own thing because, you know, if there was a fire, if, you know, if you, you need to have a sense of what's going on and be able to be exposed to that. And I think you can go too far, but but that that idea that, you need to have your processes in order is absolutely fundamental. Um, mm. uh, what about strategy? How did you, and if you were advising someone who's starting a business or like in charge of a business, which is clearly doing well uh, about what you've learned about how to prioritize, what obviously saying you're responsible for everything, you've also challenged and so you can't end up doing the admin if that's not your strength. Or like, so you shouldn't force yourself to do things you're bad at once in the long run but what would you say the most important lessons you've learned in terms of prioritization and strategy of like what should the ceo be doing you know in an ideal world when they're not buying toilet paper because <laughs> because there's an important client coming and there's no one else to buy it um so i i got a piece of advice um from our former chairman um great guy called robert marshall who um it sounds a little bit abstract, but I'll give you the context in which he gave me the advice and, and um, you know, perhaps it, it will, it will um, ring some bells. So um, 
we, we were going through a challenging time. We had a number of cash flow issues that um, shouldn't have happened but did. Uh, we were uh, had personnel issues as a result of that. Um, it, was, it was a very stressful, very challenging time. And you know, the, the business's survival was probably at stake, was definitely at stake. And at the same time, we had all this interest coming in from potential acquirers. So it's very easy, you know, shiny penny syndrome to sort of turn your head, leave the problems behind and focus on this exciting acquisition thing, which, which long-term was, was the right play. And while these two things are battling um, each other out, you've got a million other one things coming in. You've got legal issues, shareholder issues, financial issues, all this kind of stuff. Um, so I was... I had this conversation with my chairman and I said, you know, how do I prioritize here? I have incredibly important competing priorities here. And his advice was, you know, imagine you're flying a plane, right? And you've got a passenger in the back who's screaming their head off and, you know, you've got an engine problem over here and fuel warning light coming on over here and there's mountains coming on over there. You've got to, you've got to avoid the mountains. The one thing you need to remember to do is remember to fly the plane. Keep your mind on flying the plane and getting it down safely. So, okay, that sounds a little bit abstract, but it kind of helps you prioritize. Okay, so is that legal issue essential to you keeping the plane, the, the, the plane flying or the, the business going? Probably not. You can put that on the back burner for the next few days or the next week. Can the acquisition thing wait a week while you sort out your cash flow issue? Probably. Is the cash flow issue the most important thing? Yes, because if you don't, you'll run out of money and then the plane stops flying. So it's, it, it kind of helps you focus on the one next thing that you need to do in order to keep everything moving along at a, at a good pace. Um, and I, I know that can sound a little bit abstract, but you really need to think what is the one thing that if I don't do, things will fall apart and focus on that. Mm. Yes, that is quite high level. I, I was, um, and I think that's absolutely right. I very often look for, you know, if I'm looking at businesses that do well, very often the CEO has time, spends time with customers and the right sort of customers as well. That, you know, it's like if there's the revenue is coming from 10 or 20 or 50 customers, probably of those five or 10 percent maybe 20 percent are really important ones and the ceos who spend time with those customers and then other people like the good customers rather than getting sucked into you know well my uncle's brother <laughs> that's my dad sorry not my uncle's brother my my uncle's friend has got an interesting company and sort of getting distracted from the focus of so spending time with customers and organizing the the, what the company does around customers. And the other, which I think was a challenge probably for Vantage Power, is finding a business model based on repeat revenue that, you know, um, most of the businesses I'm involved in that have done really well are ones where there are customers who, once you've got a sale, they come back month after month, year after year to buy yeah. whatever it is. And, you know, it's not to say that businesses that have lumpy one-off projects aren't potentially successful but it's it's really tricky to have an organization that can scale to do a million pounds or two million pounds worth of business or, or 20 or half a million for one customer and then when that's over you've suddenly got to have another project lined up ready to go exactly i think that that was a very um, important learning i think another thing that i would try and incorporate in a in a future business project is 
if you're if you're leading a business which is so multifaceted it, it's obvious that you will be super super busy as it starts up but i think to some extent you kind of want to design yourself partially out of it as it as it grows and i don't mean out of it like you're disconnected i mean you're out of it as in you are not um you're not the one where every single email and question is coming to you need to give yourself some space and some time that you are not 100% in the business to your earlier point you're, you're able to work on the business see the business as a whole have some headspace for some longer term the center of innovation is here and you know this is part of the message of project cashmere of this whole podcast that there's something happening here which is beyond just good value for money like i said having the vision is great but the key is these concrete initiatives that drive it at the ground level I think for all those people who are really, they do extremely well with very limited resources and we can take advantage of the really low costs here. You know, Poland is the land of opportunity and I, and I like to say the East is the new West because you always used to go West in history to find more adventure and danger and prove yourself. There are some good things beginning to happen here in Krakow, but we've got a very long way to go. Good morning, good evening, good night, whatever time of day it is, or night it is, Project Kashmir's listener. Today on the show, we've got a special guest, someone I've known for quite a number of years, Alex Shea. And Alex, rather than me try to introduce you, why don't you do it yourself as if you met a stranger at uh, some kind of businessy or event or party and someone said, oh, you look interesting, what do you do? Right now, I'm, I'm sort of involved in three things. I am uh, the chief commercial officer for electrification for a, a big US company called Allison Transmission. Um, I'm also still kind of the CEO, uh, but very much still the co-founder of a company called Vantage Power that was acquired by Allison in April last year. And I'm also uh, the chair of a local school. Okay. And you, you mentioned the, the, the company that was acquired by... Alison, so the reason I've invited you on the show is that you founded and set up and ran and then finally sold your startup to a large American corporation. And part of the objective of this show is to uh, give people the, what I call the entrepreneurial journey. But I think to give it context, could you just in a few minutes take people through the Vantage Power story from more or less what, from whenever you want to start to, to where you are now? Uh, so the story really starts actually even before Vantage Power. Uh, while I was at university, I was studying mechanical engineering. And when I went into university, I didn't really have any particular interest or passion for cars but when i got there and saw a whole load of technology and projects being developed around electric vehicle technology that i really caught that bug um, and there were a number of projects that i involved myself in around you know space, um, formula student race cars things like that which which got me very excited and then um, finishing university, I, I was quite frustrated that there was all this cool, interesting technology. You know, this is going back to 2009, where it was still quite early days in the uh, EV world. I wanted to do something to help change the perception of electric vehicles and, and accelerate and stimulate that market. Um, so myself uh, and a few other recent graduates from Imperial College 
uh, designed and built what was at the time the world's longest range electric car. And we drove it from the top of Alaska to the bottom of Argentina, which is the longest road in the world. And that was a world first. It still actually hasn't been done in an electric car uh, over 10 years later, uh, which is still quite good to know that our record still stands. Um, but anyway, that, that really got us thrown in uh, to the deep end. We were engaged with a lot of different businesses. We learned how to get things done on a timeline, on a budget. It was a huge amount of experience. It was successful. Um, and that led me and another chap from that project called Toby uh, to form a company called Vantage Power. And the idea behind Vantage Power was to take many of the technologies and learnings that we had from that project, turn it into a business somehow. And what we ended up deciding to do was to design a hybrid system that could be retrofitted into existing buses to reduce fuel consumption and, and reduce emissions. And we built up a business around that. Uh, we raised uh, probably close to $10 million of funding in total, built up a team of fantastic engineers, professionals, built some fantastic technology. And towards the end of 2017, we started getting approached by, by several businesses. Um, and then we started running uh, essentially an acquisition process over the course of 2018 glossing over many of the details and focusing on the positives rather than the negatives. We can get to that later. But uh, towards the end of 2018, we ended up meeting Addison Transmission. Fantastic company, really good people. We, we synced very well, uh, got on extremely closely with them. And, and it was really a matter of weeks before you know, they had decided to make an offer. And, and we had decided that, that uh, they were the company that we'd like to move forward with. And... Um, by April uh, of 2019, the deal was done, signed, and uh, we became Allison Transmission employees. So for people who are listening, who want to hear, this is, in some sense, this is the classic story because this is a very modern story of the sort that didn't really exist 30 years ago where someone fresh out of university with good track record and a vision raises money forms a company, builds a company, sells a company. And that's, you know, that, that is the story in a sense that a lot of people now think is normal, but it's not, it's not that normal. How many people of your generation of university did anything remotely similar? Would you say you graduated in 2012, 2011 about, is that right? Uh, no, I left university in 2009. Mm -hmm. um, actually quite a few of my uh, cohort have started businesses um, I, and actually, a few have exited them as well. So actually, I would say in, in my social group, it's, it's, it's rare, but it's, it's definitely not unheard of. And, and a few people, I have one friend actually who's, who's exited two businesses already. So it's, uh, it does happen, actually, probably more than you might think. Well, well, I mean, I, I guess uh, you, I, I don't like being, <laughs> I don't like being wrong, especially online. So I'm just, I mean, just, <laughs> I'm just, I'm just like that one, or maybe I just didn't do my research properly. Um, what I, but I'm, we're very interested in what I'd call the entrepreneurial journey. And I, I remember when I first met you, I, I was, I asked you where you'd got the confidence from to feel you could start and build a business of that scale. And you told me how your father had let you sit in on business meetings and 
provided you behaved yourself and kept quiet. And this is sort of giving you the idea of what, what business was about. And I remember that was, uh, my children were quite young at that stage. And I remember that it was a huge insight. And I started dragging my children along to start. <laughs> and, uh, partly inspired by your father. So that, uh, but, so that was uh, a context. But was it expected in your family that you'd go into business? Or where do you think your entrepreneurial instinct came from? I think there, there definitely is a very large family element of it. I think um, the, the experience that you mentioned definitely played a, a big forming part in my life. Um, I think uh, a lot of my family have started their own businesses. So I was kind of exposed to that from a relatively young age. Um, but going back to your point about, you know, what gave you, you know, the confidence to believe that you can start a business, <laughs> I think there is a degree of confidence, but it's probably outweighed by the fact that you don't know what you don't know. So <laughs> you think, well, starting a business, how hard can that be? Or maybe you don't even think about that. You, you just, you just, you're young, you know, the consequences of you failing are not particularly high, at least in the early days. Um, they, they grow exponentially as, as you go forward with the business, of course. Um, and you're, you're just less afraid of failure. So it was, it doesn't require the same kind of confidence that as an adult, you look back and say, Oh gosh, that was a, that was a big leap of faith. Yeah. So you've, you've alluded to perhaps some of the challenges that you said, you don't know what you don't know. And presumably part of that is just how stressful and difficult some aspects of being in business. And I certainly noticed over the years, cause we didn't, we didn't sort of see each other every day by any means, but we we're in regular touch that there was mm. some, some stressful times. So what, what sort of categories of things do you think uh, a young entrepreneur ought to be aware of that helps is inform, maybe flesh out that insight that there was, there was a tough side to it that you hadn't, you hadn't realized was coming? What are the main categories of tough things that you didn't, you didn't realize were down the line? Oh, gosh, I mean, I think trying to segment them into tough categories is, is tough. But um, no, it's my job. I would say, I'd say one of the things that, that is really difficult to deal with and I think takes a lot of mental strength or preparation to be able to deal with. And, and I've heard this from so many entrepreneurs is there is no such thing as a good day. And if you're lucky, bad days are rare. And what I mean by that is the, the, the day in, in the life of running a business has so many inputs and so many things happening that just statistically some things will be good and some things will be bad. And it's very difficult to sit back at the end of the day and be, you know, totally satisfied, totally happy with where, the way the day has went because there's so many things going on and not all of them necessarily positive. So it can be quite challenging to enjoy the moment and um, sort of take a step back and appreciate what you've achieved and what you have. And, and that I found um, was always a struggle. But then, you know, moving away from that sort of philosophical thing, there are just things that you deal with when you run a business that you do not deal with or very rarely deal with in normal everyday life. You know, you are managing lots of people. You are responsible for their salaries, their mortgages. You know, that is a, is a big uh, burden to shoulder. You know, you are dealing with legal issues, you are dealing with shareholder issues. Um, there are, you know, 
has the printer stopped working? Who's going to sort that out? You know, you need to, <laughs> you need to figure out everything. And uh, there's probably a lot more firefighting than there is uh, value building, particularly in those early days where, I mean, for the first year, year and a half, you know, when we ran out of toilet paper, that was me running down to Tesco's to <laughs> buy more toilet paper. Um, so you really, you really do get the broad range of experiences when you are setting up a company. It's funny you should mention the toilet paper. I was just thinking of like the trivia issues that sometimes when I'm doing entrepreneurship workshops, I like, will talk to a bunch of school kids. So, like, imagine you've got an important customer coming to visit and you walk into the, the, the toilet in your 10, 15 person office and it's someone hasn't cleaned it. And like 10 minutes later, the cl- or five minutes later, the client is arriving. You're in charge. What are you going to do? And, you know, you see this sort of this panic strike. Look at, and the, the, at one level, I remember, obviously, I'm a lot older than you, that. The, the, the realization that you're responsible for everything then you know that you know if someone does something badly that's good that's you hired them you know if yeah. something's yeah. going on it would should be within your power to make it happen but that that sort of image of the entrepreneur being in the smart building taking important decisions is so far away from the reality of you know we so who's got the key to the office to lock up on a friday evening when exactly we've had that one many times i guess the way to think about it is and i think this is true for a three-man startup as it is you know fortune 500 company and that is the the CEO or the um, the main executives are disproportionately um, how to, how to put it uh, they get too much praise when things go well and they get too much blame when things go bad in the sense that you know you are responsible for everything but you cannot control everything and that is equal equal to your successes to your failures mm. and and what sort of things did you personally find? Well, and some things are hard and you know they're going to be hard. Like I noticed you, you, were, you were good at sales and meeting people and getting out there. Good, you had good presentation skills. And, I, you know, it's not easy, but th- th- it seems to me that that fell into your sort of things that you were born with. You, you're a good communicator, you know, friendly. You, you know how to smile when it's necessary. You've got that sort of – uh, some people don't have that and they can learn it. But that was – but what, what things did you find more challenging? What, what were the things that, you know – you felt you really had to push yourself in order to be good enough to to do the job. Um, I think it was uh, a lot of the administration stuff, which is is always the unsexy stuff that gets looked over, um, but it actually is is fundamental. And, and when I look at some of the things that might have been instrumental in you know, getting investment or ultimately selling the business, it probably was a lot of that, um, you know, administration stuff, corporate governance, making sure that, you know, you have a data room somewhere with every document that business could possibly have or need um, well indexed and searchable and all that kind of stuff. Um, I'm, I'm not the best with, with things like paperwork. So it was, it was always a challenge for me to get well organized around that but but i saw the i saw the need and and we were very fortunate in our early days we we had an investor and director who unfortunately died in in 2014 who um or 2015 i should say 
uh, that um, he he forced that on us very rigorously, uh, and that and that turned out very well. And then and later we hired a, a lady called Rebecca, who's still with us, fortunately, who basically ran the whole show and, and was very instrumental in making sure we were well organised on that front. Have you written? Have you documented that anyway? Have you written down? It might be if you've got a spare afternoon, it might be a, a very valuable thing to write. You know how to document your your startup, just a sort of an essay. yeah. I have definitely have documented lessons learned and things like that. Um, you published it. Anyway. Sorry, have you published that anywhere as blog posts or anything? Like no, that? I haven't. No, I haven't. I, I could do that, um, I but it, a deadline, a, a deliverable. But if, uh, but I would strongly encourage you to do that because you, you think you're going to remember, but memory memory fades, and if you if if you do write it down and if there's a next time you're mentoring or investing or who knows, starting another business, you, you'll find it very useful to come back to that. It's uh, it, anyway, that's just a, a recommend. I, I would, if you do it, I will link to it. <laughs> like <that>. Okay. <laughs> well, well that kind of brings me on to another point, which I think it's very difficult in the early days, particularly pre-investment. You know, as soon as you have investment, I think this becomes a key point. And that is, you know, you have to recognize where you are not strong and you need to hire very good people to fill in those gaps. So there, there is very little value in a founder who's, who might be technically very strong spending their time doing the accounts. It's just, it's just a waste of time. Not that accounts are not important, it's just that the person would be better off doing their techie stuff. And so you're, you are, it is incumbent upon you as the business founder to find someone that is very good at that and can take that piece of time away from you so you can focus on other areas of value creation within the business. That's terribly important. And, and you know, for anyone listening, this is um, this concept of working on the business, not in the business. You don't have to do everything yourself, but as a CEO, you are responsible for making sure that the person who is responsible is doing it properly. And there's yes. a wonderful podcast called Manager Tools, which I'll, I'll link to, run by two old American soldiers, which is the most popular management podcast in the world i believe and they talk about the concept of a battle readiness inspection that a military unit has to be ready for a random spot inspection where a senior officer shows up and says right battle readiness is inspection no one's allowed to touch anything and they just start asking questions who's in charge right where is everyone who's sick who's at work who's on holiday um what what are you responsible for where are their personnel files and they they, they make the point very few businesses would be ready for a battle or readiness inspection. But ultimately, that's what you're legally, you know, you should know as the CEO where everyone is and if you don't, and, or how to find out. And if you don't, you know, this sort of flat, trendy, modern culture is actually illegal where everyone's doing their own thing because, you know, if there was a fire, if, you know, if you, you need to have a sense of what's going on and be able to be exposed to that. And I think you can go too far, but but that that idea that, you need to have your processes in order is absolutely fundamental. Um, mm. uh, what about strategy? How did you, and if you were advising someone who's starting a business or like in charge of a business, which is clearly doing well uh, about what you've learned about how to prioritize, what obviously saying you're responsible for everything, you've also challenged that. And so you can't end up doing the admin if that's not your strength. Or like, so you shouldn't force yourself to do things you're bad at once in the long run but what would you say the most important lessons you've learned in terms of prioritization and strategy of like what should the ceo be doing you know 
in an ideal world when they're not buying toilet paper because <laughs> because there's an important client coming and there's no one else to buy it. Um, so I I got a piece of advice um, from our former chairman, um, great guy called Robert Marshall, who um, it sounds a little bit abstract, but I'll give you the context in which he gave me the advice, and and um, you know, perhaps it, it will it will um, ring some bells. So. Um, we, we were going through a challenging time. We had a number of cash flow issues that um, shouldn't have happened, but did. Uh, we were uh, had personnel issues as a result of that. Um, it was it was a very stressful, very challenging time, and you know, the, the business's survival was probably at stake. Was definitely at stake, and at the same time, we had all this interest coming in from potential acquirers. So. It's very easy, you know, shiny penny syndrome to sort of turn your head, leave the problems behind and focus on this exciting acquisition thing, which, which long term was, was the right play. And while these two things are battling um, each other out, you've got a million other one things coming in. You've got legal issues, shareholder issues, financial issues, all this kind of stuff. Um, so I was, had this conversation with my chairman. I said, you know, how do I prioritize here? I have incredibly important competing priorities here. And his advice was, you know, imagine you're flying a plane, right? And you've got a passenger in the back who's screaming their head off. And, you know, you've got an engine problem over here and fuel warning light coming on over here. And there's some mountains coming on over there. You've got to, you've got to avoid the mountains. The one thing you need to remember to do is remember to fly the plane. Keep your mind on flying the plane and getting it down safely. So, okay, that sounds a little bit abstract, but it kind of helps you prioritize. Okay, so is that legal issue essential to you keeping the flame, the, the, the plane flying or the, the business going? Probably not. You can put that on the back burner for the next few days or the next week. Can the acquisition thing wait a week while you sort out your cash flow issue? Probably. Is the cash flow issue the most important thing? Yes, because... If you don't, you'll run out of money and then the plane stops flying. So it's, it, it kind of helps you focus on the one next thing that you need to do in order to keep everything moving along at a, at a good pace. Um, and I, I know that can sound a little bit abstract, but you really need to think what is the one thing that if I don't do, things will fall apart and focus on that. Mm. Yes, that is quite high level. I, I was... Um... And I think that's absolutely right. I very often look for, you know, if I'm looking at businesses that do well, very often the CEO has time, spends time with customers and the right sort of customers as well. That, you know, it's like if there's the revenues coming from 10 or 20 or 50 customers, probably of those five or 10 percent, maybe 20 percent are really important ones. And the CEOs who spend time with those customers and then other people like the good customers rather than getting sucked into, you know, well, my uncle's brother, <laughs> that's my dad, sorry, not my uncle's brother, my, my uncle's friend has got an interesting company and sort of getting distracted from the focus of spending time with customers and organizing the com the, what the company does around customers. And the other, which I think was a challenge probably for Vantage Power is finding a business model based on repeat revenue that, you know, most of the businesses I'm involved in that have done really well are ones where there are customers who once you've got a sale, they come back month after month, year after year to buy yeah. whatever it is. And, you know, it's not to say that businesses that have lumpy one-off projects aren't 
potentially successful but it's it's really tricky to have an organization that can scale to do a million pounds or two million pounds worth of business or, or 20 or half a million for one customer and then when that's over you've suddenly got to have another project lined up ready to go exactly i think that that was a very um, important learning i think another thing that i would try and incorporate in a in a future business project is if you're if you're leading a business which is so multifaceted it's obvious that you will be super super busy as it starts up but i think to some extent you kind of want to design yourself partially out of it as it as it grows and i don't mean out of it like you're disconnected i mean you're out of it as in you are not um you're not the one where every single email and question is coming to you need to give yourself some space and some time that you are not 100% in the business, to your earlier point, you're able to work on the business, see the business as a whole, have some headspace for some longer-term strategic thinking. And I think one of the things that I really noticed um, when I was in the Vantage Power days and, and, and now as I compare it to my current role is you know, I had a horizon that was maybe like a week, a couple of months maybe, at times where really you can't see beyond that because you're so focused on what needs to happen in the next few weeks and months. Whereas now, and where I think, um, you know, CEOs should really plan on being is your horizon. You shouldn't really be thinking in anything in the next six months should all be much further out than that. So you can steer the ship to where it needs to go long-term rather than navigate over the waves as you, where you find yourself right now. Yes, certainly. That that and that that's that absolutely talks to my previous point about working working on the business. And I think yeah. that what, what obviously in a startup or an early stage business, the CEO is going to be the founder is going to be incredibly busy. All the co-founders doing everything, and it's not the case that you can afford to say, "Oh well, I'm not going to go down to buy the toilet paper. I need to hire someone to be the the toilet paper guy." However. In parallel, you need to be aiming for a situation where everything that needs to happen can happen day to day when you're not in the office. And yeah. like, once you find someone doing something, find yourself doing something more than once, you think, well, that's probably not something I should be doing long term, even if in because I need more time to meet new potential customers, and that's not a or, or whatever it whatever it is. And uh, uh, and also be careful also not about hiring new people for everything that you know if you do it more than once how can this be automated or should i be doing this at all because mm-hmm. as you referred to worrying about making payroll is, is is problematic so we've talked a bit about the history about the the past uh, where you are now um you obviously you may not be in a position to share everything about your role because it, you, some of the knowledge and know how you've got belongs to your employers, not to the general public. But uh, have you got any general reflections on the future of electrification? Because like what what you think the world will look like in three or five or seven years time that you can share that because your 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 you've got your that's your role, isn't it, to look at the future of electrification? in 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 transport and maybe a wider and and powertrains and transport yeah that, that is indeed my role and and i'm fortunate to have sort of a global perspective now which is which is very interesting very exciting i mean firstly i think to do with the elephant in the room um coronavirus uh, which if, if somebody's looking at this podcast at some point later than the coronavirus it explains this mess of the hair right now uh, <laughs> but um 
the coronavirus is, is an interesting one because you have um, a really big hit to the vehicle manufacturers in terms of budgets that they're going to have in terms of revenue to support um, research and development budgets. Um, and you can just say naturally that's likely to push out a lot of the projects and programs that they were working on. Um, you know, people aren't physically at the office to even work on these things. So, you know, that, that is a challenge. But on the flip side, you have legislation, um, European legislation, Californian legislation, uh, which is driving these vehicle manufacturers to create electric vehicles in the first place. And that legislation, as of right now, is not moving. So you have this very interesting uh, crunch period over the next five years where um, I think it's, you know, some OEMs will make it in time and will have products to sell and others won't, um, just purely due to uh, the amount of time that's left and the constraint on the supply base. Maybe you can explain to a non-specialist what an OEM is because not everyone will know. So OEM stands for Original Equipment Manufacturer and uh, in in vehicle terms that is the vehicle manufacturer so they will buy components from tier one manufacturers um, of which allison is one um, and they will typically assemble the vehicle they'll design uh, manufacture parts themselves as well of course and sell that to the end customer yes i mean so sometimes there's a concept of the oem compared to the branded company and in electronics the oem might make the thing and someone else slaps their slaps their label on it or there's oems one of these things which suggests that it's the people who make things as opposed to the people who do the branding that they're if you buy a product with sony on it it's not obvious that sony made it but the original equipment manufacturer definitely made something i said yeah i think in the vehicle industry they're, they're one and the same really so this would be a yeah you know if you if you take a car example this would be a mercedes car manufactured by mercedes yeah. type thing so um, as opposed to a tesco car manufactured by mercedes yeah exactly yeah <laughs> and there are there are examples of that i mean um you know, just to take one example, um, Tesla's first car, the, the Roadster, uh, that was actually manufactured, at least the chassis was manufactured by Lotus here in the UK. Um, so, you know, there are some examples, but really the vast majority of, of vehicle OEMs will design and manufacture their vehicle and sell it under their brands. I remember back in the 1980s, I had a job on a production line in British Leyland in Cowley Works in Oxford, and uh, there were Honda cars rolling down the line, assembled in, you know, it was definitely Japanese technology being assembled in uh, a British factory. And that I'm not quite, but that's going a, a bit off topic. Um, so, so you think that the, the, there will be this crisis is going to lead to maybe quite a shakeout and an excel perhaps a breaking of some, uh, uh, slowing down of some things, but perhaps an acceleration of others, do you think? Or is it hard to say? Well, it's really tough to say. I mean, the legislation certainly has accelerated things in recent years and will continue to accelerate them so long as they stay in place. Um, there is obviously uh, the flip side of that, where some people are arguing that because of the disruption caused by coronavirus, maybe some of that legislation should be pushed out. 
uh, in which case um, you might see some of these vehicle programs delayed or um, you know, vehicles becoming available to the public uh, a little bit later on. Um, possibly the counter argument to that is over this coronavirus period, a lot of people have lived in cities now where you know, they haven't been this empty of cars and vehicles since vehicles. Like, you know, I don't think living in London right now, I don't think I can remember the air being cleaner, uh, quieter, um, and that's incredibly pleasant. So maybe, you know, there's a small chance there's going to be a groundswell of, of popular opinion that says, well, actually, uh, we want to move to world electrification faster because of um, these benefits that we've experienced. You always come back to the issue, you know, who's going to pay for it while this technology is more expensive and there are infrastructure challenges who's going to pay for this, these more expensive vehicles. But it's kind of a chicken and egg. You know, the more we, more we buy of that technology, the lower the costs. Just like mobile phones initially were super expensive, but people started buying them and costs came down, and now you can buy a mobile phone for 10 quid. Um, so I think um, we are on that cost trend long term. Um, it's, it's very hard to stay, and we're, we're, we're talking in April, at the end of April, twenty twenty, and you know, one of the you know, there are many unknowns, including how the how things are going to evolve in the public health sphere, but also the politics. The the role of the state is completely uh, not completely; it's expanding tremendously in terms of the degree to which people are expecting the government in different countries to boss them around and tell them what they can and can't do. And also in terms of government spending, that if major car companies or major airlines collapse and have shareholder, a major shareholder becomes the government, then clearly politics are going to be much more important in telling companies what to do because he who pays the piper calls the tune is true in business, true in private life and true in state-owned industries. So quite how we need to look at what politicians are under pressure doing it could be keep things going to protect jobs or it could be a green agenda to make things make things much more go much faster and we don't know that i wanted to jump onto your role in a school because as the part of the motivation for this podcast is to do with education about entrepreneurship and you're a, a school governor and what motivated you to do that and how is entrepreneurship handled in your the school of which you're a governor and is there to collaborate on that topic yeah so i am um... I've long believed and obviously still believe that really that education is the key to pretty much everything. Um, it's, it's, a, it's the key to showing children that may come from disadvantaged backgrounds that there is more to life, that they are capable of achieving more than they may have been exposed to. Um, it's obviously key to all the scientific advances that we have had and hope to have in the future. It's, it's key to everything. Um, it also came alongside the realization that I'm probably not a good teacher. Um, certainly don't want to become a teacher. Uh, far better people than that, at that than I am. Um, but I, but it's something I've always been keen to try and support and, and give back to. And uh, it, it came up in conversation once, you know, well, what about school governor? So, you know, I checked this out and it looked like a, a great thing, basically the opportunity for a uh, private volunteer to uh, offer their experiences to a school. And um, I, I'm living in um, Ealing in West London and there uh, is a local primary school that um, I 
came across and offered my services as a governor and and joined them um, in October, September 2018. And um, I've enjoyed that very much. And, and how, how well do they handle entrepreneurship? I, I've been instrumental in introducing things like Global Entrepreneurship Week into some primary schools. And pre, I, I was challenged when I first came to Poland. People said, you know, teenagers are too young for entrepreneurship. And I, I, I was provoked and started trying to see how we could introduce it into the primary school curriculum. And do, do, I, I know that in Britain it's, there's a, a relentless pressure of the national curriculum, which means there's quite often not a lot of space for things that don't fit into the harried agenda of a primary school teacher who has a lot of form for he or she is somewhat burdened by the bureaucratic overhead as well as the need to focus on the children but is there much entrepreneurship teaching that you're aware of in the school not that i'm aware of um and and quite honestly i think you know despite being a big proponent of entrepreneurship and thinking how valuable and important it is there are some things that in some contexts are a little bit more valuable. So, so it helps knowing the school. The school is in a pretty disadvantaged area. Um, many of the kids come there um, where English is not their first language or they can't speak English at all. Um, many of them are from disjointed um, families, personal circumstances, and really the role of the school in this community as it is right now is to try and bring many of those kids uh, up to a level where they can um, contribute at the same level as their um, native peers, so to say. You know, they need to be able to speak the language first and foremost. Um, School is also a safe haven for them where they can learn these things. And the focus has been very much on that rather than... um, and obviously other areas of the curriculum as well. Um, I would say less so in entrepreneurship, and I think that's probably the right focus for this at the moment, for the school. Well, you, you know it and I don't, but if along the way you have a discussion and you want to do any pilots or invite someone in, I'm certainly ready to come over. Because sometimes entrepreneurship is a very good track for people who aren't well integrated into traditional society that you know in many walks of life your background skin color ethnicity matters more but in entrepreneurship the thing that one of the things that really matters is determination and quite often people from not everyone but some people from disadvantaged backgrounds know because it's so obvious that no one's going to do them any favors they have they're going to be reliant on their own their own resources and but not for everyone but sometimes it can be it can be valuable but that's that's probably not a topic to explore in detail in the final final few minutes of this uh podcast because i know we're time time limited alex um in terms of what your future holds uh will you do you think you'll stay in big corporate or will you go into business again would you invest in startups what do you see yourself doing in five or ten or even three years' time, or is it is it hard to say? Um, bearing in mind that your boss and your colleagues may be listening to this, and <laughs> I wouldn't like them. I, I wouldn't. There's, I wouldn't say there's any secret around that. I mean, I'm, I'm very happy with what I do right now. I'm I'm very professionally and personally and emotionally invested in the whole electrification movement, and I really want to see that through. I think um, Alison has tremendous potential in this space. I'm in a fortunate position to be able to influence the direction of of uh, this technology. So, so I'm very happy in in the role that I'm playing now to try and achieve that. 
uh, equally, you know, once an entrepreneur, always an entrepreneur. Uh, so um, I definitely wouldn't rule out starting businesses in the future. Uh, something I still retain a huge amount of interest in. And um, yeah, investment is also something, an area, an area that I'm particularly excited about. Uh, I've helped mentor informally a few um, early stage entrepreneurs uh, in the last year and help them refine their pitch deck, um, speak to investors and so on. And I found that a tremendously rewarding experience. So yeah, if there's more opportunity to do that in the future, that's probably something I'll jump at. I remember you sent me a pitch deck from someone of, uh, uh, is, uh, for which many thanks and do keep them flowing. I actually received something to do with LPG gas and retrofitting traditional cars. And I, I said to the guy that, because he, the person who approached me knew about Vantage Power and said, oh, retrofit, uh, are you interested? And I looked at the business plan and said, it's not for me. And I said that if you wanted, I could send it to you, although I was pretty sure that you'd prefer uh, projects to do with electrification rather than going That's through. Right. Yeah. Having said that, if people listening to this are interested in pitching you their ideas, what is, what's your sort of checklist of what sort of things are you looking for? Is it technology or other particular areas that you like, or is it more to do with just opportunistic? It's a great business idea and you'd like to be part of it. And how, how, do, how do you, do you what's your, what are you looking for to invest in? Yeah, it's definitely not, the opportunistic, I'll take anything type thing. Um, I've thought about this quite carefully. So, so the areas that are important to me are also the areas that I probably know more about than, than others. So uh, anything um, science and technology based that is geared towards environment and sustainability is something I'm very interested in. And uh, anything to do with education is something I'll, I'll be quite keen in taking a look at as well. And I think the important things that I'm looking for are probably the same things that every investor is looking for. You're looking for, you know, the right personal fit. You know, is that person motivated? Are they going to be able to push through the challenging times? You know, are they able to just put together a coherent pitch deck and financial model that shows they've thought through at least some of the issues and costs and challenges and you know, cost of sale and things like that that they're likely to come across? And yeah, I mean, just that instinctive feeling, do you feel this idea has got legs? And um, I think if you tick those boxes, then it's probably likely to be a good conversation to be had. Maybe I'll flesh out my interpretation of having legs means, does this business solve a genuine problem that people are ready to pay for and the amount they're ready to pay for is significantly more than the cost of organizing it all that you know that that sort of sense of the business model that you know you can have really cool technologies and great ideas but at the end of the the day week month or year if there, there isn't a positive net financial result then that idea is not sustainable as a business so, so. I, I agree i agree i mean there are some some big examples that have managed to buck that trend um, like we work, we should like we work. Well, yeah, but you know, you look at uh, ones like you know, Uber, for example, um, tremendously successful. But you know, even in the IPO filing, it says you know they don't see necessarily profitability in the in the short to midterm. So, um, but yeah, th- those are the the one one in a million type companies. Uh, I, I definitely would agree with you. You want to you want to see if somebody's willing to pay for yes, yeah. 
Well, and, and any, well, thank you very much. We've sort of gone, gone a little through the Vantage Power history, your personal history, what you're going to be doing next, why you're a school governor, what motivates you, what sort of things you might might want to invest in. Are there any things that I haven't asked your other closing thoughts that you think you'd like to share with an audience primarily interested in entrepreneurship and innovation that I should have asked you and didn't? Um, I don't. I don't think so. But there is one learning that I've had. I mean, I kind of suspected it, but but one learning I've definitely taken away from this whole coronavirus situation that I think affects work, life, every mental state, um, and that is, you know, since since the lockdown, I've had more time than I've had in the past to exercise. So I've been getting out on my bike for about two hours a day. And that has had wonders, had wonders in the way in which I feel, the way I think, and clarity of mind, purpose, and things like that. And I only wish I hadn't made time for that during um, all those stressful years in, in starting up the business and, and navigating it through its various challenges. You know, taking the time out to focus on yourself and uh, keep yourself healthy would have yielded great benefit um, and that's something that's really sort of being brought home to me during this this challenging period that we have right now um, I think a very solid learning for the future very interesting my sister uh, who's a, a GP in London and fortunately is better from having had the virus many health service workers have got the had the virus in the UK she introduced me to park run which is this great idea of free five kilometers for free forever running on Saturday mornings all over the world. And I've started running, doing basically a 5k most days. And in a TEDx talk I gave last year, I talked about the concept of opportunity readiness, where if you don't know what to do in your life and you're ambitious, you can certainly get yourself ready for opportunity, which includes looking after your health and diet, includes working on your skills, working on your, you know, your finances, so that when the opportunity comes, you're in good shape. Because if you're not in good shape, you know, you're overweight, smoking, drinking too much, maybe some other, uh, uh, other addictions, your body's not going to be with you. And you weren't in bad shape. We did. I think that we played squash quite early on. We did. And you beat me. <laughs> I remember you were rather put out. I was so pleased to beat someone hard. <laughs> someone half my age on that yeah I, but uh, but you know competition is good provided it's in reason but certainly the virus has taught us many things and one of them is to and to appreciate what really matters and of course uh keep in shape well alex it's been a pleasure to have you on the show if someone wants to get in touch with you what's the best way for them to reach out to you uh, just by email ashe at gmail.com fantastic thank you very much indeed for your time Thank you for listening to another episode of Project Kashmir, brought to you by me, your host, Richard Lucas. If you enjoyed listening, check out additional podcasts on our webpage, projectkashmir.com, or on iTunes, where you can also subscribe so you never miss an episode, and also leave us a five-star review if you feel like it. We welcome feedback and suggestions of new interviewees, whether as comments on projectkashmir.com or via our page on Facebook. This podcast was produced by Adam Zuber. Thank you again for listening. You know, vision is all great and well, but execution is actually the key. The actual process of meeting those people, working with them, is in itself a huge reward. 
interaction between the university and the business high-tech community is absolutely fundamental. Diversity creates a healthy ecosystem, and I think that I'm seeing more and more that diversity. It's not just about individuals, but it's about new individuals, it's about you know, um, new initiatives. Sometimes they overlap with each other, sometimes they might be cannibalizing each other, but the reality is that you want to have as many as possible because that accelerates the big picture. We're not going to have everyone in the world here, and in this connected world, we don't need everyone here, but, but the, you know, the artists and the designers, the creatives, they're very much part of what, we, what we've got and what we need. So if you're listening again somewhere else in the world and you feel you, you're looking for a place where your, your, your creative juices will run, then, then, then this city is certainly a place where you can find yourself. And I think you can make history in Poland. I think you can be part of something much bigger than you could be a part of in the United States right now. Not just from a, you know, going out to San Francisco to make Silicon Valley richer, but but making a new part of the world um, grow at a much faster rate, be a much bigger part of that community, and and making it wealthy not just for wealth's sake, but for uh, a purpose, which is to make that country's government stronger, 